Grace, mercy, and peace to you. From God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. None of our nation's founding fathers would have ever said it, but it caught a young generation's attention as soon as it hit the airwaves. Freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose. So goes a line from one of the 60s greatest hits, Janis Joplin's Me and Bobby McGee. Written by Chris Christofferson, it was released in January of 1971, just three months after she died of a heroin overdose. It topped the charts and became famous for that chorus line. But what does it mean? Freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose. On an online uh, forum, people offered some thoughtful insights. One person wrote, when you've got nothing to lose, you can do whatever you please. When I was young, single, and had no career to speak of, I could pack up and move to another city or go backpacking on a whim or whatever I wanted, really. Now I have a mortgage, a family, and I'm not free at all. I get up in the morning, go to work, do what the boss says, then pick up the kids from school. And if I decide to chuck the job, I'd lose the house and maybe even the marriage and family. Not that I'd ever trade it away, but the fact is we give up a lot of freedom when we take on the responsibility of a middle-class life. Another person offered this. I think it means that being free isn't the most important thing in the world. In the exciting atmosphere of newfound freedom during the hippie 60s, that was an unusual statement. Being free was the ultimate goal, to defy the conformity of your parents in the 1950s. Wear jeans and long hair, not penny loafers and bro cream. Very few young people back then would say that freedom wasn't so great. That comment uh, brings back memories, doesn't it? But then those same young people, uh, many of us, grew up. The writer of the song, Chris Christofferson, said this, I think that when I wrote that, I was trying to show that freedom is a double-edged sword and that you may be free, but it can be painful to be that free. Even according to the scriptures, freedom from one thing, like the Old Testament rituals and ceremonies, can lead to slavery to something else, like sin, leaving a person worse off than before. Biblical freedom comes with responsibilities, but they're designed to be mutual responsibilities, where we help each other and support each other, assist each other, and see that no one goes without. Being so free that you have you know, nothing at all won't make you very happy at all uh, for too long. Los Angeles streets are filled with people who uh, lost it all, chasing after that kind of free, only to discover that, that, that nothing isn't nearly everything they thought it would be. It's interesting that many of the freedoms we enjoy in this country were restricted by blue laws, reaching all the way back to the Puritans of the 17th century uh, in Connecticut. These blue laws attempted to regulate moral behavior, especially in regard to what you couldn't do on the Sabbath. And harsh punishments were put in place to ensure compliance. Now, back in the days of the Puritans, church attendance on the Sabbath was mandatory. And the Sabbath began, the Sunday Sabbath began on Saturday evening. There was to be no lying, no swearing, and God forbid, no drunkenness on Sunday. No card games or dice in public. And certainly no sales of alcohol. Offenders might face monetary fines, be whipped, forced to spend time in the stocks, or even have body parts burned or cut off. Uh, a violator might even receive the death penalty. Now, no one can say for sure how much of these extreme punishments is legend and how much is really fact, 
But I, you know, a light whipping for staying home on Sunday morning and watching a soccer game or baseball instead of being here listening to an enthralling edge of your seat sermon on Sunday morning, that's, that seems justifiable. <laughs> At least for the first offense. Just kidding, okay? Many of you will remember when stores were closed on Sundays, I'll bet. And to this day, in at least a dozen states and, and dozens of counties around the country, you still can't buy alcohol or even a car on the Lord's Day, new or used. The cars were one of the things that, that made the list, right along with alcohol, all the way up. Um, up until 1985, Texas blue laws prohibited the sale of pots and pans and washing machines. In 1961, the Supreme Court upheld blue laws not on the basis of religion, but in support of the idea that workers need at least one day off a week for rest, recreation, and tranquility. So did legislating morality actually work? Well, who knows, right? It's been a long time since church attendance was mandatory. But here's an interesting fact. In 2008, a study by MIT and, and Notre Dame economists found that the repeal of blue laws, which meant more freedom for us, right, actually led to decreased church attendance and church donations. It also resulted in increased alcohol and drug use among uh, religious individuals. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's what, not what God had in mind when he made the Sabbath day holy. And that leads, really, leads us right to chapter 5 from Paul's letter to the Galatians. This whole letter is sort of a spiritual declaration of independence because it frees us from the Jewish legal obligations and insists that we become right with God only through faith in Jesus. Up to this point, Paul has defended his status as a true apostle, equal to the other apostles who were commissioned at Christ's ascension. His message was uh, you know, very different from the word one urged by the Judaizers who had broken into Galatian congregations and were misleading Paul's recent converts to Christianity. These men uh, that came in taught a sort of a mixed message and they would follow Paul around as he planted congregations around Asia. He preached that Paul, that a person is saved by grace alone. Grace shown in God keeping his promise and sending Jesus of Nazareth as the promised Messiah. Jesus lived a perfect life to fulfill what God's holy law rightly demanded of us. And he died an innocent death as our substitute to pay for the countless sins and misdeeds with which we transgressed God's holy will. On the basis of what Christ has done, God now credits his son's merits to sinful people like us as his free gift. By faith in Jesus, he justifies that is, he declares the sinner to be just. He looks at the sinner just as if he were sinless, holy, and righteous, just as if he were looking at his son. Uh, it's hard to imagine. That takes nothing less than a true, unconditional love. The Galatians received that good news from Paul gratefully, and they embraced it. And then the Judaizers would come in and, and challenge that simple faith. They said, sure, that's all true. You have to, you have to accept Jesus. But you also have to accept the Old Testament ceremonies and all the laws, hundreds of laws that were connected to them, since that's always been the way of God's people. Well, that made sense to the Galatians too. And so Paul has to reaffirm his point. He said the law has already been fulfilled by Jesus and the ceremonies and the rituals have been abolished now. 
There's nothing you can do and nothing you need to do aside from believe in Jesus to earn God's favor. You've been freed from all those legal, legal requirements. And what do you think happened? Well, just like when the blue laws were removed in, in our time, uh, people began abusing their new freedom. Verse 1 in Galatians chapter 5 says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourself be burdened by a yoke of slavery. See, they've been set free from all the ceremonial uh, laws and rituals handed down by God through Moses. All those things that had been meant to uh, teach them how to be God's people. And so that they would recognize the Messiah when he did come. But they hadn't been freed to embrace a sinful lifestyle. And slavery to sin is just another form of slavery. That's human nature. And that study we talked about concluding that freedom from the blue laws led to an even you know, worse moral behavior than, than before uh, was more than just an anomaly. You know, we Americans are great lovers of freedom, but we also need to take a hard look at the dark side of independence. You know, like the kids who get their driver's license and then wrap their car around a tree, or the students who go off to college and drink too many shots of tequila and die at a frat house party. We've got to learn to handle the freedom we've been given. And that's what Paul is already writing about 2,000 years ago. Something that's never really changed. And that's exactly what happened to these Galatians. They allowed their new freedoms to let their sinful natures run wild. He urges them to be led by the Spirit, uh, refusing to gratify the desires of, of that sinful nation, nature. At the root of the problem, though, is another question, isn't it? You know, are we sinners because we sin, or do we sin because we're sinners. You know, the popular opinion today is that we're all basically good, but that's really not what the Bible teaches. The answer to the question is that we sin because we are sinners. Ever since the fall of man, way back in the Garden of Eden, mankind has inherited a sinful nature that's always working to, to try to get us to walk away from God, to walk away from the Holy Spirit that he gave us at our baptisms. You know, we live in a constant tension between what our sinful natures want us to do and what we know that we should do in order to live at peace with God and to live at peace with one another. We know the Galatians were struggling because Paul offers a whole list of sinful things in this same chapter that were likely going on. Here's his list. <clears throat> Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, Fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, Paul says, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul names 15 sins by names, and then, then he wraps up the list with, and the like. Every one of those things is forbidden one way or another in the Ten Commandments, the overarching moral code and, and life guide that God gave us that was never abolished. The Ten Commandments aren't rituals, they're not ceremonies, they're, they're God's commands for right living and meant to, to guide God's people and prevent strife. Now, did Paul say that any or all of those things were unforgivable? That Jesus didn't suffer and die for some of them? No, he didn't. In fact, in their pagan past, the Galatians had done all those things. It's a warning not to return to them, and it sounds pretty obvious that many of those people were. Paul wants them and he wants us to understand that if God is so serious about sin, that he sent his own son to become a ransom for sin, then how can the Galatians, or how can we, 
carelessly continued to live a sinful lifestyle. It was a pattern Paul was addressing when he warned that those who live in it will not inherit the kingdom of God. Immersing yourself in a sinful lifestyle will eventually lead to rejecting God and rejecting the work of the Spirit in your life who's trying to bring you to repentance and bring you back to the foot of the cross to receive God's forgiveness for the sake of the blood of Jesus that was shed there. The original language has the sense of if you continue doing these things. And as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 6, we're not free to sin, but we have been freed from sin. We're not free to cross certain boundaries. We're not free to uh, abuse God's moral code. You were called to freedom, Paul is saying, but don't use your freedom for self-indulgence. Don't assume that your, uh, uh, your faith in Christ gives you a kind of get-out-of-jail-free card to pursue a sinful lifestyle. You know, there was a, an early church heresy that involved people who were uh, known as the antinomians. Uh, the word means literally against the law. Antinomians believed that Christians were not bound by any moral laws since God's grace is so broad and vast. Those kinds of beliefs are the things that really push Paul's buttons. He wrote to the church in Rome, what then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? And he answers his own question with a, with a phrase that uh, kind of borders on an expletive, and it's usually translated by no means. We might say, heck no, or something maybe even a little stronger. Moving forward to Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, he says, You were called to freedom, brothers, but do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. For if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you, do not, you are not consumed by one another. And he moves past this list of uh, bad things going on to a list of good things that should be going on. Things that we know as the fruits of the Spirit. Things like love, joy, uh, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no law, no law against those things. There's no law against being too kind or too loving. In fact, this is a list that should mark a Christian's life. Now, when was the last time someone came up to you and, and, and said, Would you please stop being so loving or so joyful or so patient? Now, they may have thought about it because you made me make them, making them look bad or maybe made them feel bad. But maybe we don't have that problem. And maybe that's because we're so timid about using our spiritual freedom to express those things, the good things. On this day of American independence and all the ways we can use it to make the world a better place, we can also celebrate our spiritual independence. We can be reminded of all the opportunities that we're given to use those gifts. So we've been empowered through the Holy Spirit to make a difference. Paul was writing under the inspiration of the Spirit as God directed, and he isn't asking something of us that's impossible. The need is great. So I thought just to summarize all this theology, right, that makes your eyelids half close, let's go bowling. This month's Wired magazine uh, carries a story about the man who changed that sport forever. Sadly, we lost him to COVID. His name was Mo Pinnell, and he was just one of a handful of men in the world who are still designing bowling balls. So what's to design, right? They're all round. Most of them are black, and some of them weigh more than others. Oh, no, my friend. 
No, no, no. To be a bowling ball designer, you first have to earn a degree in mechanical engineering. Then you'll need a head for physics. A whole lot happens during a ball's 60-foot journey to the pins. When Pernell took an interest in the sport in the 1970s, a bowling ball consisted of a, a round core and a cover, the exterior layer of the ball. And who knew, but that cover was studded with microscopic spikes. Those spikes varied in height from manufacturer to manufacturer, but they were intended to create more friction on the, the oiled surfaces of the, the wooden lanes. The friction increased the potential for that, that last minute hook that ideally steers the ball right into that sweet spot behind the first pin. Maybe for you it's this sweet spot. I'm left-handed, right? This way. All right? Because when you hit that spot right between the first pin, within an inch or so, you increase the chances of, a, of getting a strike to 95%. Some pro bowlers were actually, uh, up to that time, soaking their balls in a flammable solvent to soften the cover and increase the, the friction factor even more. They even invented a tool and put a limit on how much they could, how soft they could actually be. But Pernell came along, he saw a better way. He changed the ball's dynamics by changing the shape of the ball's core. Asymmetric cores, not even close to round. Diamond-shaped cores. Offset pear-shaped cores. Cores that were flat on one end. Cores with a tail. And the result was that the bowlers who used Pinnell design balls saw their scores shoot up. It changed the way balls are designed to this day, from the inside out. Not all that different, really, from the way God redesigns us when we come to faith, from the inside out. Really, from the, the heart out. He took the, uh, the same old design on the outside, but he changes for the better at the core. See, ideally, the right use of our political independence would generally begin from the top down, offering us opportunities for a better life and to make the world a better place, although sometimes a grassroots movement from the bottom up is the best choice. But the right use of our spiritual dependence, our, our freedom from bondage to sin, always starts at the core, where God's Holy Spirit took up residence in our hearts at our baptism. In fact, we just saw it happen. It's a miracle of faith guiding us and empowering us to make the right spiritual choices. But still, in the end, to enable us to enjoy a better life with an eternal future and to make the world a better place, but in this case, always with an eye on the world to come. They sound similar, maybe, but very different in all the ways that really count. And so, for all the freedoms we enjoy this day, we give God thanks. Amen. Now may that very special peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.